Thanks for joining us for the start of the Physical Faith series. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has to say to us, and please give a warm welcome to Dr. Derry Long. Hey, good morning, Journey. My name is Derry Long, and uh, welcome. We're going to begin the, the start of a five-week series on physical faith, so let's Bow our heads together and pray and uh, ask the Lord to be our teacher. Lord, we're grateful for your kindnesses to us. We all come in with things we have, we have to be grateful for. We all come in with battles that we're fighting. I pray that we'll find your grace sufficient for every need. Lord, even as we pray for those things that are immediate to us, we think of, think of the people in Nepal who by the Tens of thousands are enduring unspeakable suffering, deprivation, fear, and loss. We pray that you will be with them, that they will experience your love, that you will partner with your people in bringing resources to that need. Thank you for your many kindnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians traffic in a world of unseen realities. Many of the things you and I talk about are not visible things. The Bible tells us that God has never been seen. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, one of the aspects of faith is defined as the assurance of the reality of things we cannot see. And yet you and I are material in part, and we are earthbound. And being material and earthbound, the Lord knows the limitations of those realities. And so to help us with our walk, He gives us physical things that point us to unseen spiritual realities. For example, I've brought a little uh, keepsake that I have that I keep in my office. This is a little piece of granite. And uh, it's an inch by an inch square. And uh, the, the Getty Museum, which our family calls the Getty. The Getty Museum on a hilltop in Malibu in L.A. overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The Getty Museum is built with stone, this stone, quarried from Italy. It is the same quarry that the stone for the Colosseum in Rome came from. But I don't keep it as a physical reminder of a physical reality. I keep it for something else. Whenever I look at this, I am reminded of one of those few perfect days that a family has. But my wife and I and our three kids were vacationing in L.A., and on, on one day, with a beautiful blue sky, we went up to the Getty Museum... And we spent the day strolling through their gardens, eating at their restaurants, looking at the fabulous art collections, sitting in the open atrium areas, having mochas and visiting. And when the day was done, it was like, this is just like a perfect day. And for me, this stone isn't about the stone of the Getty or the stone of the Colosseum. It is about the love and joy that the Lord gave our family on one day years ago 
in Los Angeles. This physical reality reminds me of an invisible reality, a bond that exists in our family. The Lord knows that we need physical reminders. And so we're going to be looking at a series of those. Today, baptism. How the Lord uses water to illustrate an unseen physical reality. Next week, communion. How the Lord uses wine and bread to communicate an unseen reality. And he says to us, do this in remembrance. I want you to remember something when you, when you handle these material things. And then we'll look at confession and prayer and at foot washing. Two physical examples that the Lord gives us as unseen spiritual reality. And we'll end up with the Bible. A physical book that you and I can throw in a suitcase and hold in our hand. And yet point us to a plethora of unseen spiritual realities. So we're going to jump in right away and we're going to look at baptism. And we're going to begin with the baptism of Jesus Christ himself. So here's our scripture coming out of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. We're going to find five aspects of baptism in the passage of scriptures we're looking at. And this is the first one. Baptism is a family event. Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And just like a baby is born into a family, baptism is the birth into a new family. And when we're baptized, it's always a family event. Really, when you're reading the scriptures, someone's always baptizing someone else. Here, John was baptizing a number of people. Jesus joined these ranks, and he was baptized as well. Baptism is not an isolated activity, nor is it to represent simply an act that we do. Baptism is the welcoming into a family. We are born into that family. We don't get to choose the family. Kimball wrote a book, People Love Jesus, but they don't like the church. You know, I think a lot of us could say that, but Jesus would say, what's your point? I could say, my parents have some features I don't like. God would say, what's your point? Your last name is Long. You've got the DNA of Long's. You're going to have the DNA of Long's. You can run as far away as you want. You're never not going to be Long. Now, the Longs have some peculiar features. Like most of them think someone's going to steal something from them. And so my father, who died at 86, he'd have four locks on the door up in northwestern North Dakota. Which is all right in July. But if you come home from a late event in January at 20 below with 30 mile an hour winds and you're trying to find the keys to four different locks while the headlights of a car are helping you, those are great circumstances for family mocking, (laughs) which we did. Those were the days of, uh, of telephone lines where you could listen in, you know. So our family always thought somebody else was listening in. My dad would call someone, and then he'd think he'd hear a click. And so they'd finish the conversation, and then my dad would say something like, you can hang up now, Lois. 
But my family has positive traits. Like one of the highest values in the family I grew up around, which was not just my mom and dad, but all my aunts and uncles on my mom and da- my dad's side, was hard work. Even today, all of them living around Williston, North Dakota, their view of all the oil workers coming in is most of them are just hard workers trying to take care of their families. So even, it, even though it has significantly altered their world, they respect work. And the other was they were good neighbors. They didn't even have to like you to be a good neighbor. If you had a need, they'd go help you. They might talk about you later, but they would help you because they, they were just good neighbors. And I was born into that family. And if you have come to Christ, you are born into this family. And it has strengths, and it has weaknesses, and it sometimes has funny ways, and sometimes you'll be tempted to distance yourself or to get frustrated. The problem with that is that you're just as weak a link in this family as everybody else is. Because we all bring our strengths, and we all bring our weaknesses, and we all bring our funny ways. We have this in common. We are part of the family of God. We do not live in isolation. Many of the fruit of the Spirit the Lord gives us are relational fruits. Love, gentleness. These are relational gifts. Many of the gifts are the Spirit are relational gifts. The gift of mercy, the gift of helps. These are relational gifts. So God intends for us to live out our walk with Christ within relationship. It's a funny thing about Americans because we're part of the West and the West tends to be individualistic. Many people come to Montana and then they they have a house here and then they build a cabin somewhere up in the hills to get away. Do you know that over 85% of the counties in Montana are considered frontier status because they have less than six people per square mile. So most of the people think just moving to Montana is getting away. So those of us who have gotten away feel we got to get further away to really be away. Now we're all under a lot of pressure and I understand that. But if you and me think that the fundamental ability to be healthy depends on the absence of people. And there's something wrong with our thinking. That fundamental reality to stay healthy means the absence of people. I actually function that way. I'm an introvert by nature. It's easy for me not to be around people and to be around books. The book, if you just shut it, if you don't want to read it, people are much more difficult to shut. We have two, uh, two grandkids that are both, two grandsons that are both two years old right now. One has learned how to talk to his dad. Camden says, Daddy, no. The other one just says, uh, uh, Stop that. <laughs> you and I are born into a family. And you look around, and you said, Man, I'm related to him? Yeah, you are. You're going to be in heaven with them, so you might as well learn how to get along with them here. You know, some of us are going to end up accidentally 
accidentally living in the Baptist section of heaven. And God forbid others of us ended up in the charismatic section by accident. You know, I mean, I'm a German, Norwegian, North Dakotan. My idea of wildly praising God is hands raised about here. And if God himself shows up, we might get up to here. But there'll be none of this. When we baptize, we're baptized into a family. And we live out our life, our, our divine, holy, eternal purposes within that family. And we embrace that family. That's the second thing that the scriptures teach us. But John tried to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do not come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I don't get to choose what family I'm born into. But this is an act of identification. And I get to choose who I identify myself with. And when Jesus came to earth and took upon himself our form, God was saying, I choose to identify myself with you. Now keep in mind, this is someone who knows every thought you've ever thought, every idea you've ever had, every mistake you've ever made, every sin you've ever committed, every failure you've ever experienced. And this perfect God says, I choose to be identified with you. He says to you, regardless of how you came in today, you are my people. You are my people in grace, and you are my people in disgrace. You are my people when you're obeying, and you are my people when you are disobeying. You are my people when you are soaring, and you are my people when you are struggling. You are my people. And when we get baptized, we are choosing to identify ourselves with the family of God, the body of Christ. I was speaking many states away not long ago. And in the place I was speaking, in a Christian setting, there was a man who was living out the humiliation of a very public failure. And when I got done speaking, I went down because I saw him and his wife come in late and sit in the back. I went down around the back, pulled up a chair, and sat next to him. And after that meeting was over, he stood up and he said to me, I, I, I didn't know, I, I wasn't sure whether we should even come tonight. And then I thought, but these are my people. And I know no church does this perfectly, but journey is trying to be a place that when you are sitting in your greatest disgrace, you'll feel the impulse to come here on a Sunday because you feel, but, but these are my people. 
you will not feel the impulse to run, to hide somewhere else, to feel that you can only show up when you're in grace. Because if these are your people, then they are with you in grace and they are with you in disgrace. There's a third aspect of this baptism for Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, in this passage, we find two other purposes of baptism. One is a, it is a means of grace. By means, we mean is it, an, it is an avenue through which God's grace flows. The scriptures show us that there are various ways through which God sends his grace. Grace has two meanings. One is the unmerited favor of God. That even when you have earned it and do not deserve it, you stand in favor with him. Because he identifies with you and you are part of his family. The unmerited favor of God. The second is God's power to help you in time of need. And when the the Spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus, the Father was empowering his Son to carry out the mandate that he had sent him to this earth to do. To fundamentally become the Messiah to a broken people who could not redeem themselves. And when you and I are baptized, God is sending His favor, His grace to us to equip us for the divine and eternal purposes that are part of our life. He wants us to experience His favor and His power. Now, right now in the United States, CBS reports last week, for every person who finds the Lord and steps into the church, four people are leaving. And four people are leaving primarily because they're unhappy with the product. That when we speak of these invisible things like grace, most of them cannot figure out how to make that work in their life. This God who is with us through thick and thin, heaven and hell, and yet we feel isolated and abandoned. People actually don't believe this very point that I now speak of. You see, you and I want to live in the kind of relationship with the Lord where we don't find the great stories just in the New Testament. We have the stories. Someone wants to know about mercy. We can tell them a story about how we experience mercy. Someone wants to know about uh, about grace, and we can tell them how we experience grace. Someone wants to know how in the world with a devastating family, early family life, they can ever experience love, and we can tell them about how we experience love. We become the holders, the storytellers of the work of God in this world, and we do that by virtue of grace, but we only experience grace if we camp by the avenues God sends His grace. 
Not if we're out in the bush somewhere. So you imagine a map and the roads to get to Bozeman. Imagine as well that there are roads through which God sends grace. And we want to camp along those roads. So when we need grace, we can have grace. It's there, accessible, visible to us. So we're, we're living by prayer and by the scriptures and around other believers who make Christ real to us. And we're using the means of grace, of baptism and communion, because we want to experience the favor of God and the power of God, because we need to have the stories. Not just the disciples in the New Testament. Now there's a fourth thing that we see from that passage, and it is joy. Baptism is the Christmas of Christian experience. Baptism is the Christmas, the beginning, the new birth. It is the Christmas of the Christian experience. Now, I come from a family where we celebrate Christmas. We love Christmas. We do all the things the preachers tell you you shouldn't do at Christmas. We spend too much money. We eat too much food. We, we frolic. We, <laughs> we just have a great time. We have a certain set of videos we watch, like Louis Anderson's comedy routine. A comedian out of St. Paul, Minnesota, who did a whole routine on the dysfunctional family he grew up with. And so when uh, Laura and Brianne came into our families as daughter-in-laws, we would use the phrase, if they would do something, you're ruining this whole family. Well, that can be disturbing if you don't know the background of it. Uh, And it comes out of a Louis Anderson uh, comedy routine. We take a sleigh ride at the 320 Ranch every year. We, We just... In the midst of all that, we find ways to bless and help other people. Christmas is a happy time for us. It's a time when we celebrate. And the the Christmas of our religious experience is baptism. As we step into the new life that we have in Christ. And the joy that surrounds that new life. Interesting, there's one other aspect to baptism that's not often mentioned. And we'll read it here in the scriptures. Then Jesus was led immediately by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. The very first thing that happened after Jesus' baptism was the temptation of Christ, where out in the wilderness he suffered the temptation from the devil in three different areas. Satan was trying to rob Jesus of his identity. When you're baptized, you're declaring to yourself and to other people into the world whose side you're on. You're saying, in effect, I'm switching sides. I was over here living my own life in my own power according to my own standards, and I'm switching sides. And now I'm over here. And I'm changing my sweatshirt. (laughs) You know, my sports clothing is going to look all different. Now I'm on Jesus' side. And I'm rooting for the other team. Because I've joined that team. And as soon as Satan sees that's what you want to do, before it ever gets cemented, secure, he wants to come in and steal it away from you. Say, no, no, you're you're over here. 
Don't get so lofty in your thinking. I know what team you're on. You're on this team here. And when you and I are baptized, we are inviting the Christ of the New Testament to come in His grace to give us not only a new identity, but to give us the strength to stand because we are entering in to a cosmic warfare. You don't need to go to Star Wars to find this stuff out. All you need to go is to the New Testament. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. To everything good in our life, we have an enemy. And baptism means I am trusting in the provision of Christ to help me stand in the midst of the adversarial push of Satan and in the midst of his trying to rob me both of my birthright and of the divine purposes that the Lord has given me in this life. You and I are invited to this physical act of baptism as a declaration that we have repented, that we've turned our back on our own ways and on our sin, and we have embraced the Christ who offers to us entrance into his family, identification with us, his joy, power in time of need, and the ability to stand in the new identity we have in him. Let's bow our heads as we finish up this morning. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, no one's looking around. You might be here today and maybe you are in disgrace. And others know it. Members of your family, perhaps neighbors. Maybe the only one that knows it is you. And you come in with that weight. Perhaps there's no great disgrace, but you know that you've been living your own way. And you're living in independence and isolation. And the Lord invites you today. Come be part of my family. Come, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll find rest for your souls. And right where you're sitting, you can pray today. and You say, Lord, I am sorry for the independence that I've shown from you. And I repent. And I turn my eyes towards you and I ask you to forgive me. To come into my life to help me live in this new life with a new family and a new identity and a new power in Jesus' name. And with our heads bowed, if you'd like to pray a prayer like that, we're just going to wait for a moment. And in your own words, you just pray. And you talk to the Lord.
our heads are bowed at the moment and nobody's going to embarrass you but just to honor the Christ who died for you who loves you with all of his heart if you've prayed a prayer like that today would you just lift your hand up and put it down and say pastor I prayed that prayer just lift up we are way over here on the right one two three four up here in the center three over here on my right way in the back way over here on my my right way in the back one two yeah over here way the far right let's pray together Lord thank you for your kindness to us and talking to us today for these who slipped their hands up I pray you rush grace to them that they'll experience your favor and your power Remind them that they're part of a family, that they're not in isolation. They don't need to stand alone. That whether in grace or disgrace, they will be loved. Thank you for your kindness to all of us.